Let's hear God's word this morning from 2 Timothy, chapter 2. You then, my child, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Amen. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Our God and Father, we praise your holy name. We thank your holy name for being faithful to your son all the way to death on a cross, and we thank you for being faithful to him and bringing him back from death. We thank you for giving him a fruitful ministry for 40 days after that and for bringing him back into your manifest presence where he sits and rules and reigns as the king of all kings and as the high priest of heaven and earth forever and ever and ever. Oh, Father, we render to you our thanks and our praise, and we ask that you would come now by the Holy Spirit and speak to us by your word. Father, I ask you to move in power among us. Lord, sometimes you speak in a whisper, and sometimes you speak in a shout. Sometimes you move in a still, small wind, and sometimes you move in a hurricane, but however it would please you. Father, I pray that you would move among us today. I pray that you would touch hearts. I pray that you would change lives. I pray that you would even seek and save the lost right here in this room today. I pray that you would encourage those who need encouragement. And I pray, Father, that in all things, your name would be greatly glorified. We thank you, Father, for what you have done on the cross and through the resurrection. And we thank you for what you will do this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen. The Incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are by a long shot the most important monumental events in the history of the world. What could be more important than this? What could be more amazing than a God who in the person of Jesus would take on flesh? What could be more amazing than Jesus living every day of his life in perfect obedience to his Father, the only human being in the history of the world who has ever walked in perfect obedience? What could be more amazing than a God who willingly submits himself to the suffering of betrayal, 
the suffering of abandonment, the suffering of mocking, of false accusation, of false trials by very powerful people who submitted himself to being flogged, which is something we probably have heard about before, but believe me, unless you've seen it with your eyes, you probably will never understand. I probably will never understand. That movie, The Passion of the Christ, was probably the most graphic thing I've ever seen that helped me feel the power of that flogging. Christ took it upon himself willingly as the only one who did not deserve that kind of treatment. And then he was crucified on a cross and he willingly allowed himself to be buried in the earth that he created. And he spent his Sabbath Saturday that year in the grave, the author of life embracing death for us. But early in the morning on Sunday morning, by the power of God, he was raised again from the dead. He came back to life and he showed himself first to the women and then to his disciples and then to about 500 others. He taught and he prayed with his people and he guided them in the way that they should go for about 40 days before he was ascended in the sight of his disciple into the very presence of the Father. And beloved, if all these things are true, if the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus Christ are true, there is nothing in the history of the world that is more monumental and that ought to be more life-shaping than that. Amen? If those things occurred, they ought to get the full attention, not only of our minds, but of our very lives. There is great evidence that these things did happen. Great evidence. I'm not going to go into it today, but I do want to suggest a book to you for those of you who may be interested in looking further at the details, for those of you who need to not just take on faith that the things that are being said here are true, but you want to study. It's by a guy named Josh McDowell. The, the book is called Evidence for the Resurrection, and it's one of the best books on this subject that's out there, first of all, because it's readable. You don't have to have a college degree to follow all of his arguments, and yet it's well, well researched. There's lots of footnotes. For those of you who like to study and want to do more study, Josh will definitely lead you in the way that you should go. But if you are interested or if you have doubts about things like the incarnation and the resurrection, I urge you to buy this book. It's not very expensive. I think I looked it up the other day. I think you can get it for five, book, five bucks on, on Amazon. So I'll leave those kind of details uh, to you and to Josh McDowell if you're interested. For today, I want to spend our time thinking about the implications of the resurrection for our daily lives. And I want to do that by meditating with you carefully on what the Apostle Paul had to say to his protege in the ministry, Timothy. Paul met Timothy in a little city called Derby, which I'm not sure it's still called Derby. The town is actually still there. I'm not sure it still goes by that name. But Paul had been traveling around preaching the gospel, and Timothy was one of those that heard the gospel. He already was a believer. But Paul was so impressed by what he saw in this young man that he persuaded Timothy to drop his entire life and to go with Paul from city to city around the world preaching the gospel, and this they did for a number of years. At some point along the way, Paul decided that Timothy would make a good pastor of the church that was in the city of Ephesus, which also is still there. It's now in the southwest part of Turkey. And Paul sent Timothy there, and he pastored there for some time, and over time, Paul wrote him a letter to give him guidance and encouragement. We call that First Timothy. And then some more time passed, and he wrote another letter that we call Second Timothy to give him, again, encouragement and to give him guidance. And I think that at the heart of Paul's second letter that he wrote to Timothy, at the heart of what he wanted to say to this young man, his son in the ministry, his protege in the ministry, was what we see in chapter 2, verse 8. Paul said to him, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Remember 
Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Now, to help us understand, to feel the weight of what Paul's trying to say to his son in the faith, and I think to all of us today, I wanna back up to verse one and just sort of follow his train of thought here. So if you'll look back at verse one, you'll see that Paul writes there. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Please notice how much Paul loved Timothy. He called him my child. This was not literally his child. Just notice the love that's there. Paul loved Timothy like a son. As I said, he did not lead Timothy to Christ, but he met him when he was pretty young, and he got him into ministry right away, and off they went, praying together, reading the Bible together, preaching the gospel together, rejoicing at the victories of the gospel that they saw together, suffering the necessities of the gospel together, going to jail probably together, probably having rocks thrown at them together, being, a, being uh, uh, maligned together. They went through a lot of things together. And what I wanna emphasize to you is that through all of that, they really bonded. They became very close. Their relationship was very deep. In fact, I think that their bond was unbreakable before the Lord. You see, in the Christian church, leadership development is not about equipping people with skills so that they can accomplish tasks. There are things that have to be done. People need skills to do them. But in the Christian church, the heart of leadership development is a man of God investing himself in a younger man of God, or a woman of God investing herself into a younger woman of God, and between them, there's not just a sort of a structural job that has to get done, the love of Christ is pulsing between them, and they are bonding as siblings in Christ, as brothers and sisters in Christ. In the Christian church, leadership development is relational. It is familial. It proceeds on the bonds of the love that Christ demonstrated on the cross and that Christ gives to each of us. And so it is that Paul loved Timothy. Oh, there was plenty of work to be done. And there were many skills to be developed. And from what I can see in Scripture, Timothy was one of the more skilled men that Paul had brought under his leadership. But believe me, underneath that all was a deep love, a familial love, a fatherly love for this young man. He loved him like a son. And because of that, he wanted Timothy to be strengthened by the grace that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Or if I could put that another way, Paul did not want Timothy to face the many difficulties of being a pastor, or for all of you who are not pastors, to face the many difficulties of life in his own strength. He wanted Timothy to have a pattern of life where he was constantly looking to Jesus and drawing upon Jesus and finding strength from Jesus to do the things that Jesus had called him to do. And furthermore, Paul wanted Timothy to overflow in his ministry by investing in other men in the same way that Paul had invested in him. And I do mean in the same way. Of course, Paul wanted Timothy to find some guys to whom he could teach the finer points of the gospel. There's no doubt about that. Paul was probably the greatest Christian theologian outside of Jesus that ever walked this earth. But I hope you can see that Paul was saying more than that to him. Paul was saying, Timothy, find some guys that are faithful guys and give your heart to them. Invest your life in them. Yeah, it's risky. Some of them might forsake you. Some of them might turn against you. The risk is worth it. Don't just be a man of truth, be a man of love and 
truth. Find some brothers, Timothy, and invest your heart in them. Again, life in the body of Christ is not primarily about accomplishing corporate tasks. It's about the love of Christ. It's about the, the, the life of the resurrected Christ pulsing through the body. And so, of course, ideas matter. Of course, theology matters. Of course, truth matters. But it wouldn't matter if it wasn't for love, though. So, again, Paul wanted Timothy to find guys that could teach the gospel well and who could refute those who opposed the gospel. He said that in several places. But he wanted to, Timothy to find men who loved Jesus and who loved the church and who loved the lost and who were willing to be taught the skill of applying the gospel to these kinds of situations, to everyday life. The church is not primarily a religious or an intellectual institution. It is a family of the people of God who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and who are learning day by day to walk in love of God and love of each other. This is what the life, the death, the burial, the burial, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ produced, beloved. There's no organism like the church anywhere else on the earth. Oh, there are plenty of religious institutions. And I know that it's popular in our day to say that all religions are basically saying the same thing, but that is not true. And you don't have to have a degree in anything to see that that's not true. You can just do a little research on your own and you'll see that we're saying very different things. And I promise you, there is nothing on this earth so unique as the body of Christ who is much, much more than an institution. We are a family bound by the love of the risen Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. Now I do wanna say just a word about why Paul emphasized men to Timothy and not women. This is not a demeaning statement to women. This is not to put women in second place. This is not to say that they are inferior, that men are greater, that God thinks more of men. It's not to say any of that at all. However, I would say that the fact of the matter is this. As the men in a church go, so that church will go. And I just wanna ask you, have you ever seen a church that's healthy and vibrant and fruitful where the men are refusing to stand up and lead? Have you ever seen a church like that? Have you ever seen a healthy church where the men are passive and inactive or unbelieving? The one thing I can't think of is when I've been overseas, and there are some places overseas where it just seems to be like the women are coming to Christ and not many men are coming to Christ. And so most of those churches, they're led by women by default because there really are no, or there are few men around that are able to lead. But even in those contexts, if you talk to them about this, like my friends in India, I've talked directly to them about this. There is a hunger in their heart for men to come to Christ and for men to rise up and to lead. There's something in the way God has wired us so that men have the proper role of leadership. And let me be clear about that. That is not a call to dominance of anybody. It's a call to service. It's a call to pace setting. The men in the church are supposed to rise up and say, this is the measure of passion we're gonna have for Christ around here. This is the measure of joy we're gonna take in Christ around here. This is the measure of devotion to the word of God we're gonna have around here. This is the measure of willingness to sacrifice and suffer for the good of other people that we're gonna have around here. Men that are truly leading by the spirit of Christ are not coercive, they're inspiring. They're not afraid to call people to rise up. They're not afraid to call people to move, but they do it by example, and they have no need to do it with coercion. This is the kind of thing that Paul had in mind, beloved, and, and, and I'll tell you one thing. When I've seen churches where men rise up like this, amazing thing, the women rise up right beside them, and we run together for the glory of Christ. So please understand, this is not an exclusive word to women, and, uh, and a, a word exclusive of women, 
And this is not a word that's demeaning to women. This is just a matter of priorities. I think, again, if the men of the church rise up, the women will rise up right alongside of us. And you see, this is why Paul said to Timothy, not just to look for men. Do you notice what kind of men he said? He said, look for faithful men. When I was just about to go into full-time ministry, I'd already been basically working half-time ministry for probably 15 years by the time I went into full-time ministry. But one of my close mentors sat me down and he looked me right in the eyes and he said, you need to hear me and hear me well right now. When you get into ministry, invest yourself in faithful men. Don't try to go after the guys who are unmotivated and try to get them motivated because as, as a noble of a desire as that is, it will not work and it will waste your time and it will hurt the church. He told me, find faithful men, invest more of your time in those men, and then together you can pastor everybody. Everybody needs to be shepherded toward God, but there's a priority issue here. In the kingdom of God, motivation for ministry cannot be coerced from the outside. It has to be a matter of the heart. And for the pastor of the church, uh, Paul to Timothy, he's telling him, brother, you've got to find faithful men. It's easy to start, beloved, but it's really hard to finish. It's easy to begin a thing. It's very difficult to endure to the end. It is very difficult to endure to the end. It's easy to serve when things are going well. It's hard to press on when things are not going so well or when things seem flat from our point of view. And so what is needed is faithful men and then, of course, faithful women whose eyes are fixed on Christ and whose wills are bent toward Christ and who are willing to press on in faithfulness day by day by day. Timothy, find some faithful men. Invest in them just in the way that I have invested in you. And I want to say to you, beloved, these things were not theoretical to Paul. He had been through a lot in his life in ministry, but I'm thinking more specifically of things that had just happened to him. He wrote this letter to Timothy from prison, and part of the reason he wrote from prison is because some folks had forsaken him. At the end of 2 Timothy chapter 1, he talked about some of his suffering, and then he talked about the reactions of two different groups of people. One group of people was represented by two guys named Philegius and Hermogenes. If you're looking for a name for a male child that you may be having soon, there's a couple uh, possibilities there for you, Philegius, Hermogenes. Although you might not want to name them after these guys in particular because they forsook Paul. Evidently, they had seemed to believe the gospel and they had gone down the road with Paul. And trust me, he was honest with them about what the life was going to be like if they were to follow him and to seek to be gospel preachers in the world. But when the chips were down and when life was hard and when suffering became real and not theoretical, they were gone. They forsook Paul. And I don't know if they forsook the Lord completely. I don't know if they forsook the gospel completely. We see other examples in the Bible of people like young Mark who did forsake Paul on the mission field, but God was gracious to him and brought him back later. And I pray that for these two brothers, whoever they were, I pray that they came back. But right now in the heat of the moment, when Paul needed his friends the most, they were gone. They were not faithful men is the point. On the other hand, there was this guy named Onesiphorus. There's another great name for you looking for a name for male children, Onesiphorus. He remained faithful. And Paul reminded Timothy that this guy had been faithful for a long time in the very city of Ephesus. He said, you remember this guy. He was amazing. He was so faithful. And he was really faithful to me. In fact, Timothy, he sought me out. When he got to Rome, he sought me out. And by seeking me out, he brought discomfort upon himself. He brought threat upon himself. But that's the kind of man this is. He's a faithful man. Now, chapter two, Timothy, I want you to find faithful men. I want you to find some faithful guys 
who will fix their eyes on the risen Christ and press on and press on and press on by faith in him and faith in him alone. And with that, Paul gives Timothy three metaphors of the kind of person he ought to be and the kind of people he ought to look for. So look with me at verses three and four. Paul says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. I want to point out to you here that the primary thing Paul is after is not courage, but loyalty. He's not mainly trying to get Timothy and others around him to be brave. Rather, he's trying to get them to walk in love. Or if I could put it to you this way, look at that first sentence there. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I would suggest to you the emphasis is not on suffering, but the emphasis is on of Jesus Christ. In other words, be a person, Timothy, and find men around you, and then, of course, women, too, who will rise up and look to Jesus as their Lord and their Savior, the greatest love of their life. Look for people who are grateful to him, who are surrendered to him, who are given to him, who look to him, who draw upon him, who trust in him, who serve for the glory of his name, no matter what the cost or consequence, suffer not for the sake of suffering or because you're brave or because you're courageous, but because your love for Jesus far outweighs your love of comfort and safety. You see, be a soldier of Jesus. Be one who loves him so much that you're willing to endure whatever you have to endure. This is why Paul says soldiers just don't get entangled in civilian pursuits. They are focused people. Soldiers have made a choice about their lives which makes them die to every other thing in their lives. And the primary reason that Paul says they're focused like that and that they were willing to die to other things is to please the one who enlisted them. They want his affirmation and blessing. They want his endorsement. They want his trust. For every one of us who believes in Jesus Christ, the one who enlisted us is Jesus Christ. Amen? If you're a believer, you are a soldier in the army and you were personally enlisted by Jesus himself. He's the one who saved you. He's the one who calls you. He's the one who welcomes you into his family. He's the one who gives you a position. He's the one who commands you. He's the one who empowers you. He is the one who is worthy of all your praise. He is the one for whom you forsake civilian pursuits. Do you see, the image of a soldier doesn't necessarily conjure up feeling of love exactly, except that maybe we think of a soldier has love of country. But in this case, this is all about love. This is about living an absolutely focused life because of the love of the risen Christ. That's what it's about. And now Paul changes metaphors. Timothy, if that doesn't work for you, I got another one. Verse five, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now like a soldier, an athlete has to be focused. They have to be focused specifically on what they're really good at. I heard a world-class athlete a few months ago say that he literally doesn't know anything about any other sport on the earth. He doesn't know who the stars are. He doesn't know what the scores are. He doesn't know when the seasons start and end. He doesn't know anything about it because he's focused on being great at what he does. He said, if you want to be good, be focused. If you want to be great, be hyper-focused. In fact, he said to be great, you have to be a little bit crazy to your craft, is the way that he put it. And I get the point. There's something about that in the Christian life. If you want the most fundamental thing about you to be, that your love of Christ is great and growing, then you have to focus and die to other things. 
And in addition to that, Paul says here that in order to get the prize that Christ has waiting for you, you have to compete according to the rules. Now, the question is, what does Paul mean by that? What rules is he talking about? And I can only imagine, given the context of this whole conversation, that what he's saying is that it was not without clarity that Paul called Timothy and others into ministry under these kind of rules. We believe in Christ and therefore we have eternal life. We entrust our lives to Christ and therefore we surrender the details of our life to Christ and we follow him wherever he leads us. And when he leads us into difficulty and suffering, we keep following, we keep praying, we keep trusting, we keep hoping, we don't give up, we remain faithful because God has been so faithful to us. These are the ground rules. The initial moment of belief is not enough. We must endure to the very, very end. Jesus himself said to people who were considering following him, these were not to advance folks. These were people who hadn't even decided yet what they think about him. He said, if anyone would come after me, he has to take up his cross. He has to take up the instrument of his own suffering and come after me. That's what he said. Death and suffering is not the point of the Christian life, but it is the path. The only way to eternal life is death to self, death to comfort and ease, death to safety and security, death to the control over our own lives. Death to life on this earth is what it takes to accomplish whatever specific mission God gives to us. And again, I wanna emphasize to you, beloved, that suffering is not the heart of the point here. The heart of the point is a love so overwhelming that we're willing to endure anything to gain Christ. And if I have to suffer a little bit of pain to die to my flesh, that I can gain an eternity of happiness with him, then so be it. Is it always fun? No, it's not fun. Recently, I got in contact with some old friends of mine from before I was a Christian. And as much as I still love them, they are living a crazy life still after 30 years, crazy life. I just can't have regular contact with them. I can't do it. I, it's, it's, it just won't work. I had to lose people who were very precious to me in order to gain Christ, and, and it was painful, but it was worth it. Every single moment of it, it has been worth it. Suffering is not the point, but it is the path, beloved. It is the path. And again, it's about a love that is so great that it's willing to endure anything for its beloved. So Paul now changes the metaphor again. Says, Timothy, there's a soldier, there's an athlete, I've got one more for you. Think about hardworking farmers. In his day, there was lots of farmers around, just like I suppose there are still around our city now. He says it's the hardworking farmer who rightly deserves the first share of the crops. Like soldiers and like athletes, farmers are focused people. They are hardworking people. They are persistent people. Because if they're not focused and hardworking and persistent, what happens? They lose the crop and nobody eats, right? Moreover, farmers live for other people. Of course they need to put food on their own table and God amply provides for them. But just think about the heart of a farmer. They live to feed other people. Oh, how I admire farmers. It wasn't always true. I, I grew up in LA, didn't know a lot of farmers in Los Angeles. But I'm telling you, since I've moved out here, my respect for farmers has just gone through the roof. And this is one of the things that I respect the most. They live to feed other people, as Paul as all of this relates to the Christian life, I think Paul is saying that the passion of faithful men and women is to work hard so that other people can enjoy the fruit of Christ, so that other people can taste and see that he is good, so that other people can come to eternal life. In order for that to happen, beloved, we're gonna have to work hard, we're gonna have to be focused, 
We're going to have to be persistent, and we're going to have to suffer. That's all there is to it. It is not an easy path to salvation for everybody, and we're going to have to give our lives over to the Lord. Or even as a brother shared with me this morning, God put an impulse on his heart to share with somebody else, and he didn't want to do it. There was fear in his heart. There's a little bit of pain in pushing through fear, but praise God, he pushed through the fear, and he said what God gave him to say. In order for others to hear, in order for others to, to, to feast on this crop, that God has given. We're gonna need to suffer. But again, this is an issue of love. Please notice that like a wise father, Paul does not command Timothy to obey him in these things. He does not command him to write papers or do anything of the sort. He just says, son, think about what I've said. Just think about it. Prayerfully ponder these things and God will give you understanding. See, that's the heart of a man who's truly serving God and doesn't need to coerce the people around him. He just puts the food out there. He's, what he's saying is absolutely true. And he had such clout in the church and such clout in Timothy's life that he could easily have commanded him to do these things, but he didn't do it. He said, son, just prayerfully ponder these things. God will help you. And I think he's now saying that to all of us. God did not put this text on my heart for nothing. He did not bring this text before us this morning for nothing. Prayerfully ponder these things in light of Jesus Christ, beloved. How's your life going? Are you acting like an athlete, like a soldier, like a farmer? Or are you acting like something else? Pray, and I promise you, God will give you understanding. He will give you insight. Now, maybe a handful of you are wondering what happened to the resurrection here. It is, after all, Resurrection Sunday, and I haven't really said a word about the resurrection. Well, I promise you I haven't forgotten it. I just wanted to get to the resurrection the way Paul got to it, because that's the heart of the blessing that I think the Lord has for us today. So with all of that in mind now, please listen again to what Paul had to say to Timothy. He said, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Remember him. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Now, that command to remember is a very old one. If you're ever looking for a good Bible study to have, look up every occurrence of the word remember in the Bible. Some of them are just normal conversational uses of the word, but many of them are commands to God's people to remember, remember, remember. Why is God so persistent about this? Well, it's because we're amazing at our ability to forget. Can I get an amen? I'm not old, but I'm 50, and I'm, it's getting harder and harder for me to remember things that are even exciting to me. And important to me. We are great at forgetting. And so remembrance takes discipline, but beloved, it flows out of love. It's just like with my beautiful wife. I've, praise be to God, I've never had a hard time remembering our anniversary. One thing that's helpful is that it's on Thanksgiving weekend, so I'd be a real dunce to forget our anniversary. But there are other things that are important to Kim that are easy for me to forget. So I have ways of making myself remember because I want to display love for my bride by showing her that what's important to her is important to me. So I just want us to understand the command to remember is about love. It's about love. Look to Jesus and demonstrate your love by doing whatever you have to do to remember him, remember him, remember him. Think about him. Keep your eyes fixed upon him. Keep your life focused upon him. Remember, remember, remember. And at least here, Paul says to remember two specific things. First of all, that he is risen from the dead. If the resurrection took place, we've said it already twice today, Kevin said it and I said it, but I'm gonna say it again. If the resurrection took place, if Jesus was confirmed dead, if he was put in a grave, which we believe he was confirmed dead and put in a grave, and then if he raised again from death to life on the third day, 
which we believe that he did, then beloved, that person, that man, the Lord Jesus Christ, deserves our full attention. He deserves our utter devotion. He deserves our eternal praise. In fact, the resurrection is so central to the Christian life that in 1 Corinthians 15, 13 to 20, I think that's right, yep, 13 to 20, Paul put it in the negative and said this, if Christ has not been risen from the dead, hear this, our faith is vain, useless, our preaching is vain, we misrepresent God because we tell lies in the name of God, then Paul says our faith is useless, it's of no worth, of no effect, of no value, of no import or implication, He says, those who have died believing in Christ have died without hope as fools. And finally, he says that Christians above all are to be pitied. Why should we be pitied above all if Christ is not risen from the dead? First of all, we've believed in a lie. Second of all, we've shaped our lives around a lie. And third of all, we're actually willing to suffer for the sake of a lie. We should be pitied above all people if Christ is not risen from the dead. That's how central the resurrection is to Christianity. I would just tell you, no resurrection, no Christianity. It's that simple. But on the other hand, if Christ has in fact been risen from the dead, then the power of God has been manifested on this earth like never before or ever since. And our faith is not in vain. Our preaching, my preaching this very morning is not in vain. We are not misrepresenting God as a friend of mine is telling me these days that I am an atheistic friend that I'm interacting with, he's constantly basically telling me I'm telling lies and untruths about God, but I'm not. We're accurately representing the truth of God. Our faith is not useless, but rather it is life-giving both in this age and in the one to come. The dead in Christ have not died for nothing, but they have died and inherited everything in Jesus Christ and Christians are not to be pitied because we have heard the truth and we have believed the truth and we have shaped our lives around the truth. We have taught the truth and preached the truth even at the risk of our safety and of our comfort, but God has been good to us. Christians, unlike some other religious folks in this world right now, would never kill for other people to be Christians, but we would be killed, we would die. We would literally lay our lives down. And maybe some of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world have literally been killed this morning for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a different kind of message. That's a non-coercive, life-giving, eternal message. And it's all because Christ was, in fact, risen from the dead. Paul the apostle believed from the depths of his heart that this was true. That it was not only a fact of history, but that it was the central fact of history. Later in his life, he saw it in the scripture from beginning to end. One thing I would love to do is hear the Apostle Paul give a teaching on the resurrection in the Old Testament. I would love to hear that, but I know for a fact that he saw it there because he said that he did. But in the heat of the moment in his life, he first saw the risen Jesus Christ long after he had gone to be with the Father. Jesus appeared to him and other people were there and saw it too. He physically, visibly appeared to Paul Paul saw it and he believed. And after Paul humbled himself and began to follow Christ, he met the apostles, all of whom had seen the resurrected Jesus, all of whom had been taught by the resurrected Jesus over a period of about 40 days, all of whom saw the resurrected Jesus go to be with his Father in their very sight. And I don't know how many of these people he knew, 
But I think Paul does hint that he knew some of the 500 people that also saw Jesus raised from the dead after the fact. Beloved, please believe me, Paul was not just propagating a religious myth or something he wasn't totally sure about. Paul believed to the depth of his heart that Christ had been raised, and this is why his life was so radically transformed. It's difficult at best to describe Paul's life path if Christ has not been raised from the dead. And so now he looks to Timothy and he says to Timothy, my son, I want you to live in light of what Christ has done. Above everything, I want you to remember Christ. Remember Christ, remember Christ, remember Christ. In light of everything that's happening in the city of Ephesus, in the church of Ephesus, remember Christ, risen from the dead. For all of us who are not pastors, in light of everything that's happening in every aspect of your life, remember Christ, remember Christ, remember Christ, risen from the dead. If he's risen from the dead, beloved, there is no more central fact in your life than that. So do whatever you have to do to remember it and to process everything in light of this one great fact, he has been risen from the dead. In fact, it occurred to me this week as I was studying all these things that the only reason Paul could be faithful or Timothy could be faithful or anybody could be faithful to God is because Jesus Christ had been faithful to his father all the way to the end and then the father was faithful to raise him from the dead. Our faithfulness is nothing more than a fruit of his faithfulness. So remember Jesus Christ. It's not so much about exerting the power on our own power and our own strength. It's about looking to him and drawing on his strength. The second thing Paul says we should remember is that Jesus is the offspring of David. There's a lot to be said about that, but I'm just gonna say this. I think Paul is saying Jesus didn't come out of nowhere. He was the object of prophecy for hundreds and hundreds of years before he came, and he was the perfect fulfillment of that prophecy all the way to the end. One of the key prophecies of the Old Testament is that he would come like David and be the king and ruler over all of God's people, both now and forevermore. So Paul is simply saying, remember the one who was risen from the dead, and remember that that thing, this raising from the dead, was not some novel idea in the life of Jesus, but it had been prophesied long ago. And he came as the utter fulfillment of everything that had been prophesied. Remember that he was faithful to his word, you see? God said hundreds of years before the fact what he was gonna do, and then he did it. He was faithful. So now, Timothy, be faithful. Now, Timothy, look for faithful men. It was for this person. It was for this Christ. It was for this risen one that Paul was suffering and in chains. He was being chained like a criminal, although all he was doing was preaching the gospel. But even while he's sitting there in chains, the most eloquent, and if you want to use this word, successful proponent of the gospel in his generation, chained up in a prison, unable to preach, unable to speak, and he sits there and rejoices because he says the word of God is not bound by which he surely meant the word of God concerning Jesus Christ. You can chain up, you can even kill all of these spokespeople of the Christian church and the gospel will go forward and go forward and go forward, why? Because the whole thing is built on the glory of the risen Christ. Beloved, this is the power of the resurrection of Jesus. It causes people to love him so much that they're willing to endure anything for the sake of his name and so that other people might taste the joy and the beauty of knowing him as well. This is the power of the risen Jesus Christ. 
that he causes us to embrace him, he causes us to embrace his good gifts, and he causes us to willingly, not coercively, but willingly let go of everything we need to let go of so that the gospel might go forward and so that his name might be exalted in the world. The Christian life is not so much about us being faithful to God as it is about putting our faith in the God who has been utterly faithful to us. That sentence is not hard to understand, but please ponder it. The call to be faithful is not so much about us being faithful to God, it's simply about us putting our faith in the God who has been so faithful to us. The call to be like a soldier and an athlete and a farmer is not so much about us working hard for God, but it's about surrendering our entire lives to the God who did all this great work for us. And even at one point, Paul said, listen, I work harder than all the other disciples. He wasn't boasting, he was just telling the truth. He actually listed out what he meant by that. And then he quickly said, but this isn't about me. He said, this is the power of God at work through me. This is about people being faithful to God, specifically because God has been faithful to them. Beloved, that is the call for the day. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember the one risen from the dead. Remember the offspring of David and surrender the totality of your life to him. Paul concludes then in verses 11 through 13. He says this is a trustworthy saying. Probably this means that this was something everybody was familiar with. It might have been a hymn or a poem or something, but probably everybody knew what he was about to talk about. And what he's saying is, listen, this saying that you know about, this saying is true. You can bet your life on this actually. The resurrection happened and so you could take this all the way to the heavenly bank. These things are true, four things, and I'll be pretty quick with this. If, you, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Notice here that the verb is in the past tense, if we have died with him. This surely means, Paul is saying, if you have put your faith in Jesus, and in this way you have died in your flesh, and you have been made one with Jesus, if you have died, you will surely live. And here's what he is saying. He is saying that Jesus promised you that if you'll give yourself to him, he will give eternal life to you. He promised you that. He's going to be faithful to that word. You want to talk about you being faithful to him, the truth is that he will be faithful to you all the way. You will see like the hardworking farmer that all that hard work was worth it. It was absolutely worth it. If we have died with him, we will absolutely live with him forever and ever and ever. And oh, what grace that is. Before we knew him, we were enemies of the cross. And now look at us, we're children with an eternal destiny. Who treats their enemies like that? Who's so gracious as that? Second thing, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Notice now that the word endure is in the present tense. He's talking now about daily life. And I think Paul is drawing on some of the teaching of Jesus that says, it's not enough just to believe at the beginning, you have to press on to the end. Here's what Jesus said but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Or in Revelation 2.10, he said, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Beloved, it's not a matter of suffering for the sake of suffering and it's not a matter of enduring by our own strength, but what's being said here is very simple. Is your actual commitment to Christ will be proven by the details of your life, you see? A tree could rise up and say, hey, everybody, I'm an apple tree, but if no apple trees ever come out, something's wrong, yes? This is not about earning anything from God. This is about proving that what was already said and done for you is true. And if you endure to the end, it's proof. It is proof in the fruit that you belong to Jesus Christ, and it's proof that he will be faithful. If you endure, 
If you press on, if you learn what it means to be a faithful man, if you learn to be what what it means to be a faithful woman, God has got tremendous news for you today. You will reign with Jesus Christ. Now, get your minds around that. Get your minds around that. One of my old, old friends, I used to party with this guy, did evil things together with this guy. He's still just into the whole rock and roll scene, into the drug scene, still all these years later, still, and you know, I've recently come back in contact with him and I just look at that and I say, I can't believe, Jesus, that you would say to me, who I should have been just like that guy if I survived at all, that should have been me. Why in the world would you be so gracious to me that you would not only forgive me and bring me into your family, but that you would call on me and cause me to reign with you. That's a measure of grace, beloved, that nobody can understand. Nobody treats their enemies like this, and Paul is saying God will be faithful to his word. You can take that to the bank. And now a negative thing. If we deny him, he will deny us. And please don't hear this as the chattering of of petty teenagers. You know, well, if you're gonna do that to me, I'm gonna do that to you. It's not a matter of that. What God is saying is you're going to reap what you sow in this life. The voices in the Christian world right now that are saying that everybody will be saved no matter what, those people are deluded and they're lying, okay? Not everybody's gonna be saved. What you do in this life on earth is gonna affect your eternity, and believe me, you don't know the time of your passing. Two young people in this city or around this city have recently died all of a sudden. None of us knows the day of our dying, beloved, and whatever we did in this life is gonna affect us for eternity. If you deny God, if you deny the Lord Jesus Christ, God will honor your denial forever. As Jesus said, those who confess me before men, I will confess before the Father. Those who deny me before men, I deny before the Father. Please don't hear this as a threat, hear this as a warning. God has been tremendously gracious in offering eternal life, and so believe Believe this morning in Jesus Christ and know that if you reject his offer, there there will be consequences to that rejection. Finally, Paul says something that I think is mainly about God. He says if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Inside of God, he is full of integrity, of honesty, of holiness, of righteousness, of faithfulness. And to be faithless would be to deny his very being. God is faithful by nature. And no matter what we do or say, God will remain faithful. I heard recently that there's some famous person, I don't even know who it is, but they're making a stink about thinking that the world is flat. It's like, well, good luck with that theory in our age, but they're going for it. And I was thinking back to the time of history where lots and lots and lots of people thought the earth was flat, and guess what? Didn't matter how many people believed that, the earth was not flat. The earth was completely unaffected by people's thoughts about it. And this is the same way it is with God. It does not matter in the end if we believe or don't believe. God is who God is, amen? The faithfulness of God to himself and then to the world is the great rock of life. It's some of the best news we could hear in life. Even if we're faithless, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And this, 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 we will celebrate all the way to the final, final day. And so I think the call for today is abundantly clear, and I pray that it's compelling. Let us believe in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Let us allow him to 
build our entire lives around who he is and about what he's up to in the world. Let us look to his faithfulness, admire him for his faithfulness, worship him for his faithfulness, and let us learn to be faithful to him in the way that he has been so faithful to us. Let us learn to endure all things for the glory of him who gave his all for us. Indeed, beloved, let us remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word on this Easter morning. I thank you for the Holy Spirit who has been here to help us understand and to apply it to one life after another. And I pray in Jesus' mighty name that you would use it now. Lord, it's out there now. The message has been preached. The word has been spoken. And so I pray that now that you would move in power upon your people. I pray that you would cause unbelievers to believe. And I pray that you would cause believers to be encouraged and I pray that you would call us to, cause us to be helped, Lord, that our lives would become more focused on bearing fruit for the glory of your name. Oh, Father, as we prayerfully ponder these things, I pray that you would give us understanding just the way you did Timothy. And I pray, Father, that you would cause your church to rise, that we might preach the glory of Christ in this world. For what you have already done this morning and for what you will do through this word, we give you our thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.